We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Dignity of people. You know, it it means respecting one another, getting along, and uh, working with people who might not necessarily agree with your position. It's certainly not about dominating one or the other. This from the United Press International, quote, Saudi Arabia has warned the United States not to revoke its sovereign immunity, protecting the kingdom from lawsuits related to September 11th, or it will sell off hundreds of billions of dollars in American assets. End of quote. Of course, most Americans would likely suggest to the Saudis that they go pound sand. And there's also this from the uh, Wall Street Journal. President Barack Obama travels to Saudi Arabia for a summit with Gulf Arab leaders, offering them a chance to repair relations strained by last year's nuclear deal with Iran. We'll talk about that today. For many decades, of all the countries in the Middle East, the U.S. has remained consistently uh, closest with two, Israel and Saudi Arabia, the two most stable governments in the Middle East region. Now it seems that may be changing, at least with the royal government of Saudi Arabia. It seems suddenly relations between the two are for the first time troubled. Today, we're going to discuss Saudi Arabia and the United States, where we are now. One of the biggest factors in possible change is a new bipartisan bill working its way through Congress, which would cut off weapons transfers from the United States to the Saudis until it can be determined that they're actually fighting ISIS and are no longer causing a humanitarian crisis in their war in Yemen, a war which we in the United States may be supporting. But as Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut says, maybe, quote, aiding the very groups that are intent on attacking us, end of quote. With us today is Robert Naiman, Policy Director at Just Foreign Policy. Thanks for being with us, Robert. Good to be with you. Naiman writes on U.S. foreign policy at Huffington Post. He writes the, uh, he wrote the Syria chapter in the WikiLeaks files, The World According to U.S. Empire. He's president of the board of Truthout. Naaman has also worked as a policy analyst and researcher at the Center for Economic and Policy Research and Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Why don't we start, Robert, by looking at where the two countries are now, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, and what our relations have pretty much consistently been since 1945. What kind of relations have there been since Franklin Roosevelt established the Special Alliance at the end of the Second World War? Basically, what 
the legacy that uh, FDR left was that, you know, as you said, there's a special relationship, which is kind of, you know, outside of politics, outside of discussion, just the assumed pillar of a U.S. foreign policy in the region. And it was based on uh, a trade that the, um, you know, this is a period when the the big change that had just happened in the world was the withdrawal of Britain, the end of the British Empire. And the United States was the rising power, and in a lot of places it just said, okay, well, we'll just take over the British portfolio. Yeah. And that is what happened um, in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia had been, and the other Gulf uh, Arab countries, had been, to some extent, you know, were created by the British, had been British protectorates, right. and the, as Britain was withdrawing and being pushed out, um, the U.S. said, oh, that's fine, you know, we'll just, uh, this, we can do this, now we're the power. So the U.S. took over as the patron of Saudi Arabia, and the trade was that the U.S. will uh, protect uh, the Saudi government, the U.S. will uh, uh, militarily protect the flow of, of oil from Saudi Arabia. In, um, in exchange, uh, the Saudis will be partners with, uh, you know, junior partners in U.S. foreign policy. And this was considered at the time a great prize because for the United States, because you know, the world economy runs on oil. Okay. So if you're the... Uh, if you're the security guard that protects the flow of the world's oil supply, everybody needs you. <laughs> you know, uh, the, yeah. the oil that flows from Saudi Arabia to Japan is protected by the United States. The oil that flows from Saudi Arabia to Europe is protected by the United States. And so the U.S. has now this very special role in the world economy. Saudi Arabia has a special role as a major supplier of oil, and the United States has uh, this major, this unique major role as a security guard protecting the flow of oil from Saudi Arabia to the countries you need it. And this is really the key that is often missed in the United States. People say, oh, well, we need their oil. Right. That's why we have to have this relationship with Saudi Arabia. No, that's not really what it's about, because the oil, to be of value to anyone, has to be sold on the world market. And so we're going to get the oil for our cars one way or the other. The thing that's special is you know, special to the people running U.S. foreign policy and U.S. government is this role of being the security guard and being needed by the whole world as the security guard of, of the oil. Ah, so what everybody, the entire world, needs just to keep its engines literally running is, of course, petroleum, oil. And uh, so, as you say, we've been the, uh, the security guard for that. And, uh, you know, things are changing uh, with regard to oil. Things are changing a lot. Who would have ever thought back when, you know, the price of oil was, what, $120 a barrel? And it's been below $30 a barrel. Seems to be inching up a little bit now, but you never know. And... Clearly, the Saudis have always based their immense wealth on this control over oil. There's a lot of oil uh, under uh, this, uh, the Saudi uh, geography. But again, the prices dropped tremendously. Saudis are now dipping into a $6 billion a month uh, reserve to keep 
the kingdom afloat. Uh, that's that's kind of a challenge. How might this all end up? Well, so another a number of things happen uh, at once. Uh, one thing that happened is that uh, the U.S. started to increase its own uh, production, right? Uh, with you know new technologies like uh, fracking and other. And when the price of oil was high, um, there was an incentive to uh, develop other sources. So that's that's one thing that happened. One thing that happened is that countries started make countries start getting better about um, conserving and You're switching right. to. Uh, alternative uh, technology. So, you know, for example, China's become a major producer of solar. Uh, so people developed alternatives. The third thing that happened, you know, and, and these are related, is that uh, after the September 11th attacks, uh, you know, the official line was that this has nothing to do with Saudi Arabia. But this is not the view inside the U.S. government. And um, we're now seeing emerging, you know, more people are starting to talk about that which was kept uh, more under wraps in the wake of the September 11th attack, the relationship between um, 9-11, the 9-11 attacks and the Saudi government. And it's a complicated story, but what, I mean, in part of it comes to this, the things that we don't know because we haven't been allowed to know them. Mm-hmm. But what anybody can say in broad measure is that for sure the Saudi government for a long time has been uh, promoting uh, an ideology and uh, that is very close to the ideology of the 9-11 factor. And when the September 11th attacks happened, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi, people inside the U.S. government said, said, wow, these people are nuts, <laughs> and we need to like not be so close to these people because we can't trust them. Meaning, the Saudi government, these people are nuts. People right. around the Saudi government are people are nuts. So part of the drive to become less uh, dependent on foreign oil came from a national security argument that we cannot be so close to these people because they're fundamentally untrustworthy allies. Uh, so that's another part of the uh, of the dynamic that's happened, and then we're seeing this this really fifteen uh, year old contradiction, deep contradiction in U.S. policy is starting to surface more broadly uh, of people more openly saying that which was you know not allowed to be said right. as openly as before. Was I had heard stories, and it seems a little bit hard to believe looking back now, that right after September 11th, uh, some members of the Saudi royal family, which is the Saudi government, same thing, uh, even though no planes were flying, somehow they were allowed to fly out of the United States and given special protection. Is there any truth to that? Do you know, Robert Naiman? Oh, I believe that uh, not only do I, I think that's a matter of public record. I mean, I think you can find that in uh, mainstream press accounts hmm. that the Bush administration um, uh, collaborated uh, to uh, evacuate the people related to the, uh, you know, Saudi royal family uh, out of the country after September 11th. And the, the question of the relationship between the Saudi government and the Saudi royal family is a little bit complicated. The Saudi royal family is a huge group of people. Right. <laughs> 
in Saudi Arabia. And so there are people who um, uh, uh, are, you know, not Saudi government officials, but are, you know, nonetheless closely related to power and have uh, influence and status and ability to do things because they're members of the royal family. So it's a little bit um, ambiguous. They're not uh-huh. employees of the government. They don't necessarily, I mean, they're not necessarily employees of the government. They're necessarily drawing government salaries and having official positions, but they have a kind of uh, state power by virtue of being members of the royal family and they have some protection by virtue of being members of the royal family. So when they do things that um, are considered unfriendly by, like, the U.S. government and other governments, you know, the people uh, attribute that with some justification to the Saudi government because they're because they're related to the Saudi government, even if they're not, you know, official employees of it. But it is a situation in, in Saudi Arabia where there is, it, it, it certainly appears to be a, a real, very, very clear class system. There's the royal family, which, as you say, is huge, and then there's everybody else. And, and I've gotten a sense that the government is very much afraid of their own people more than anything else. Well, there are, there are layers. It's kind of like South Africa, where the apartheid South Africa, right. where there are different layers. There's the royal family. Then there is uh, the um, Sunni Arab population. Right. Um, then there's the Shia population, Saudi citizens who are systematically discriminated against. Then there are the guest workers um, who have no oh, rights right. whatsoever, huh. and, but represent a huge part of the uh, economy. Hmm. So there are these uh, different strata, but the, the the government itself, obviously it's not uh, elected, There's mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, autonomous from the society, except hmm. to the extent that, you know, they have to take some account of public opinion, even though there's not, like, there's no free speech, there's no... Uh, free debate, but still, you know, people have opinions, and the government has uh, to maintain some legitimacy, especially among the Sunni Arab population, who are their base of uh, support. Well, they're, they're, you know, we we talk about how horrible ISIS is, and they are, and it does seem that uh, uh, they behead people too. It's like uh, part of the Saudi government's way of. I mean, they have a. My impression is a couple of different ways of of dealing with their majority population. One is to hand out crumbs. I mean, once they've they've had all these billions of dollars and just you know flowing in oil, quite literally, uh, they you know quiet the people by you know giving them stuff, hel- helping them out uh, economically. The other way, of course, is to terrorize them. So it seems there's a bit of uh, of of both going on. And I wonder if this plays into, and if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, a uh, good discussion here. Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, uh, Robert Naiman, uh, who is uh, policy director of Just Foreign Policy. And we're talking about uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States and how things are changing a little bit. And one of the things that has changed, it seems, and it, again, it is about oil to a large extent, the Saudi government these days appears to be deathly afraid of an emerging Iran what gives with that? Well, these things are uh, related. Um, the Saudi government has an official ideology, which is 
Wahhabism. People call it Wahhabism. They don't yeah. call it that, but uh, other people call it that, which is uh, based on, you know, a particularly narrow and extreme uh, in- interpretation of Islam, which is extremely hostile to any other interpretation of, of uh, Islam, particularly outside of uh, the the uh, uh, Sunni framework. So particularly the Shia, extremely um, hostile to the Shia. Iran is a Shia-majority country. So right off the bat, you have an official government ideology in Saudi Arabia that... Uh, sees the religion of the majority of Iranians as um, as apostasy, as heresy. Um, and that doesn't make for friendly relations to start with. On, on top of that, you have a view in Saudi Arabia that they are the leading country in the Arab world. Right, uh, right. You know, we back that up. There is an organization called the Arab League. Yes. If you look at how, which is all the Arab countries, if you look how that functions, it's basically, you know, Saudi Arabia is the executive committee. Hmm. And so from their point of view, um, the whole Arab world is their turf. And anybody um, who, you know, does, tries to have any influence in it is messing with their turf. So, for example, and that's particularly true in the Gulf area. So, uh, during the Arab Spring, there was an uprising in Bahrain. Uh, Bahrain is uh, is an, an island that's off of the Arabian Peninsula. It has a uh, Sunni monarchy. The majority of the population is Shia. So they feel, uh, you know, not only to they're uh, a monarchy and they want democracy, but mm-hmm. the majority population feels particularly aggrieved because the government is Sunni, there's systematic discrimination, the majority of the population is excluded. So they had, you know, everybody's having democracy, they had uh, a, a, a democratic uh, uprising, it wasn't the first time, but when they saw what happened in Tunisia, they saw it happened in Egypt, but there are, you know, well, that's too. So... The Saudis weren't happy about that at all because they regard the uh, Sunni king in, in uh, Bahrain as their dime. So they're not going to tolerate this. And they intervene uh, militarily yes. to uh, crush the uprising. The U.S. and Europe uh, encouraged the Saudis not to do this. And the Saudis said, you know, go take a hike. Right. This is our turf. <laughs> you have nothing to do with it. Similarly, in um in Egypt, when the uprising in uh, in the democracy movement in Egypt happened, yeah. the you know the the starting point of the U.S. was well, you know, Mubarak is his guy, he's our friend. But then you know everybody saw pictures on TV of uh, Egyptian police uh, shooting uh, unarmed demonstrators with U.S. supplied guns and bullets, and people were like, "What's all this about?" And the U.S. had to move. Um, and so the the U.S. Uh, you know, try rather than have an explosion, tried to negotiate a transition and ease Mubarak out. The Saudis saw that as a big. The Saudi government saw that as a huge betrayal, hmm. and said, "You know, what are you doing? Um, this is this is your guy. This is our guy. What is your message to us by saying that just because there's an uprising, you can throw this guy in the trash? Hmm. We don't trust you anymore." And blah blah blah. And the Saudis, in fact, encouraged the Egyptians, and together with the Israelis, 
encouraged the Egyptian military to uh, to carry out a coup, overthrowing the democratically elected government, which again the U.S. and Europe encouraged the Egyptian military not to do that, and the Saudis said to the Egyptian military, don't listen to them. If the U.S. cuts off military aid, we'll give you the money. Hmm. Uh, you can ignore the U.S. and the Europeans. You know, we're the boss here, no. what we say. And that's what the Egyptian military did. They carried out the coup, <laughs> and then the U.S. and Europe said to the Egyptian military, okay, don't do massacres, and the Saudis say, go ahead, do massacres, hmm. and they did massacres. Wow. So that is, that's, the, that's the kind of backdrop to, to understand the Saudi mentality in the region. So from their point of view, the Iranians represent a big threat, not because they think that Iranian soldiers are going to come and occupy right. the uh, Saudi Arabian Peninsula, but because they see Iran as a challenger. They don't uh, drive them crazy, even if, like, you know, the Iranian radio or Iranian leaders would say something critical of the Saudi intervention in Bahrain. That drives them insane. Because it's like, this is none of your business. Bahrain is our turf. Be quiet. Shut your mouth. <laughs> if, they, if the Iranians say something about Yemen, then the Saudis are like, none of your business. Shut your mouth. So that is, that's the mentality under which they see the Iranians as a threat. They see anybody <laughs> who could do anything that might interfere with their control as a threat, even if it's rhetorical, even if it's, you know, ideological. So that's the, the mentality. And the their expectations of the U.S., and this is true of the, of the right wing of the Israeli establishment, too, mm -hmm. their expectation is it's your job to maintain the status quo. It's your job to maintain the status quo in the region. It's not your job to be on the side of the majority of people and try to have a democratic transition. That's a betrayal. It's your job to maintain the status quo. That's the mentality that the Saudis are operating with. Wow, so they, they kind of like being the boss of the entire region, and it is a big, big, big region, and it's a very important region, even though oil is priced less, it's still extremely important. I mean, Hitler needed oil. Oil is just crucial to any functioning uh, industrialized uh, country. And uh, certainly Iran, formerly known as Persia, they are not Arab, they are Persians, uh, you know, they're, they're an up-and-coming uh, power in the area. They have quite a bit of oil, too, and, uh, and they seem to be uh, making headway. And I'm sure, as you describe it, uh, Robert Neyman, they, they must be driving the Saudis nuts. And uh, there's sort of a, uh, uh, a playground, if you will, between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. It's called Yemen, a proxy war. March 26, 2016, marked the one-year anniversary of the Saudi-led war in Yemen. What is going on uh, it, it, between the Saudi government and Iran as it relates to the civil war in Yemen? You're, you're, uh, how, how does Yemen factor into this? And then we're getting to uh, legislative action related to the war in Yemen that's happening here in the United States between a Democrat and Republican. So if you talk just a little bit about, uh, about Yemen and, and what, the, uh, you know, what it means there for the Saudis and the uh, Iranians. So the present chapter of the story uh, began again with the Arab Spring. There was a democracy uprising in uh, Yemen. There was a, a U.S. and Saudi-backed uh, dictator 
uh, named Sala. People rose up against that, and the uh, the conflict there started to take on aspects of uh, a civil war. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia and other countries uh, intervened politically uh, to try and get in a, a transition agreement to avoid a civil war, which was temporarily successful. They eased uh, eventually. They eased Salah out, replaced him with his uh, vice president. There was kind of a consensus. Uh, a political consensus on a transition. For a while, it actually looked like a bright spot in, uh, politically, a bright spot in the, in the region in mm-hmm. the sense that they managed to avoid civil war and have this, uh, political transition in the context where there are a lot of historic deep splits in the society. Not so long ago, Yemen was, was two countries, North Yemen and South Yemen. Mm-hmm. So there's a regional divide. And some people in the South are happy with the, the terms of the of the unity. Um, a lot of people in the South are happy with the terms of it. don't want to be part of a united country. And there's also a group of uh, uh, Shia uh, who have long-standing conflict with the central government. That's the, the Houthis. So there are these different factions, but a, 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 there was a negotiated agreement on a transition that agreement fell apart. And uh, the issue that it fell apart over was the relationship between the Houthis and uh, the government. And the, uh, the Houthis had an uprising. They drove out the internationally backed uh, government from the capital, Sana, And that was the point at which the Saudis intervened uh, militarily. And in in uh, on behalf of the negotiated internationally recognized government, see uh, that war has been that the Saudis led and the U.S. has supported, um, not just politically but also you know with right. logistics and military aid right. and targeting. Um, that war has been condemned uh, around the world for its uh, brutality. Yemen started this process already one of the poorest countries in the mm. region, um, but uh, not only bombing the Saudis opposed to blockade, there's been a breakdown of basic services like health care. Um, so the, the suffering uh, there has been really extreme. And unfortunately, you know, the starting point for this was kind of like everybody going along because it's Saudi Arabia. The U.S. is going on, the Europeans are going on, the Russians oh, yeah, are going Saudi on. Arabia, yeah. Nobody questions Saudi Arabia. Wow. But the situation has become so extreme yes. that people are starting to question. There has been a political process to try and have negotiations and a ceasefire, but that has repeatedly uh, broken down, yeah. in part because it's a significant measure because of the intransigence of the Saudis, although they're not the only guilty party. So this is the context in which the uh, the Murphy-Paul legislation right. has been introduced to try and get some oversight uh, and discussion and debate about the role that the U.S. has been playing in supporting the Saudi military intervention in Yemen, and also more generally challenging the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Because one of yeah. the key provisions of the bill is it, it puts an extra step in the 
in the approval of U.S. Uh-huh. Uh, arms sales and arms transfers to Saudi Arabia. It says that the president has to certify that um, that the that Saudi Arabia is taking uh, steps to uh, avoid civilian casualties, but also the president has to certify that Saudi Arabia is cooperating in the uh, campaign against uh, ISIS and yes. al-Qaeda terrorism. Well, let's take... The other big question that people in Washington have about the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia. Boy, I'll say, and uh, this is fairly unique, I think. We have, uh, the, the bill is uh, sponsored by uh, two senators, Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, and U.S. Senator Rand Paul, yes, that Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, whose uh, conservative credentials are unquestionable. And there's a, there's a quote here from uh, Senator Chris Murphy about the, uh, the proposed legislation. He says, we must acknowledge when a friend's, he says, Saudi Arabia is an important partner, but we must acknowledge when a friend's actions aren't in our national interest. I have yet to see evidence that the civil war we're supplying and supporting in Yemen advances our national security. The more it drags on, the clearer it becomes that our military involvement on behalf of the Saudi-led coalition is prolonging human suffering in Yemen and aiding the very groups that are intent on attacking us. And that's from uh, Senator Chris Murphy of uh, of Connecticut, a Democrat, and he's working with, uh, again, Rand Paul. That, uh, that statement there that's a real change. I mean, to, to think, well, we can't criticize them because of Saudi Arabia. Something clearly has changed w- with regard to that. How how significant uh, is this uh, legislation that, uh, and I, I don't know what the uh, Senate bill number is, perhaps you can tell us so we can, uh, if in- people are interested in helping out and, and supporting that with their uh, local delegation, uh, they can do that. How significant is it that uh, Chris Murphy, presumed liberal, and uh, Rand Paul, Certainly, conservative are are working together. How do how do you think this is uh, is going to go? Well, I think it's very significant. As far as I can recall, we've never had anything like this before. Um, Chris Murphy has been speaking out for a while, uh, a couple months, which is itself unprecedented that a senator. Uh, that any senator would speak out like that, any right. member of Congress, that anybody would speak out. That never happened before. But then uh, introducing a bill is another step. Like he's trying to do something in Washington in the way that people try to move the ball. And one of the things that you do when you're trying to move the ball is you try and get a, a co sponsor on the other side to say this is a bipartisan effort. And obviously, you know, Senator Paul is a logical choice because he has been uh, a spokesperson for the wing of the Republican Party that's more skeptical skeptical mm-hmm. about war and, you know, U.S. Uh, entanglements. Um, so that's potentially a very powerful uh, combination. They're both on the um, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, so they're both, you know, kind of spokespeople for their, uh, mm-hmm. uh, within their parties on, on foreign affairs. Where how far this is going to go, I don't know, but right. I can tell you that so far it's already having an impact in the debate. If you look in the press articles, uh, William Hartung had a piece today in the New York Times uh, talking about the U.S. supplying um, cluster bombs to Saudi Arabia. Uh, mm. 
And he mentioned the, the Murphy-Paul bill, but the, the press coverage in the New York Times and The Hill and others talking about the president's trip to Saudi Arabia in this moment of tension and conflict in U.S.-Saudi uh, relations, the, are, these pieces are all mentioning the Murphy-Paul bill. The top thing that they're mentioning often is this uh, conflict over uh, terrorism with the bill uh, sponsored by Senator Schumer and Senator Cornyn. Yes. That's another powerful political yeah. combination, and many other senators, like Franken, for example, uh, saying that the um, that the immunity of the Saudi government from uh, lawsuits, right. U.S. Uh, citizens' lawsuits for support of terrorism uh, that takes place on U.S. soil should be limited. And this is something being driven by family members uh, of people who were killed in the September 11th attack. Yeah. And we should be able to sue the Saudi government for this thing that happened on U.S. soil. The position of the Obama administration has been, no, that sovereign immunity, um, and uh, we can't touch that. And the position of senators, these senators has been, no, this is a very narrow thing that we're doing here. We're just saying that they're not immune for a terrorist attack that happens to Americans on, on U.S. soil. So that's the lead thing that's showing up on these articles, because obviously that's a very big, uh, yeah. momentous uh, split between bipartisan group of senators and the administration. And by the way, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders also have endorsed this uh, bill to limit the Saudis' uh, 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 liability from these laws. So that's the so that's the lead. But these articles are also mentioning the Murphy-Paul bill, saying that you know this is another question that senators are raising. You know why are we supporting this uh, Saudi war in Yemen? So already that's huge. Now my hope is that you know this was this bill was just introduced last week. We just uh, did an alert on it yesterday. Other uh, groups are going to be doing this, too. My hope is that we can get other senators to um, uh, co-sponsor the bill. After all, we had this, uh, this larger group of senators that was willing to go against the administration line on this other bill. Maybe we can get some other senators to go against the administration line on um, the Saudi war in Yemen. And I think that would be a big uh, change in the dynamics in Washington, if we could get a larger group of senators to speak out on that. Right. And I, I thought it was interesting that uh, Senator Murphy uh, mentioned that he was concerned about uh, how American support, military, logistical money support for the Saudis and their military actions in Yemen threatens our national security interests. And, you know, I, ISIS is, you know, it's a pretty scary stuff. So here we are. They've always been the most stable, you know, country, the leader, the boss, basically of the entire uh, Arab uh, Muslim world in that particular area. Certainly not in the you know Philippines and others, but they, they have been the leader in that. So, in what ways, you know, it's like we've always helped them because helped the Saudis because that, at least in theory helps our national security. They squash some of the bad guys. They, they're more moderate, more stable. But how, what is Senator Murphy's concern about how our, our current you know, support for uh, the, the Saudis' military action in Yemen might actually threaten our own national security interests? What does he mean by that? Well, there's two things. One is that we've seen Yemen 
the one of the dynamics in the Civil War that that the U.S. has struggled to grapple with, um, which predated even the the uprising, is that uh, Southern Yemen has been a base for uh, Al Qaeda, and this is part of a a pattern. Uh, Al Qaeda likes to go countries where the central government is weak and where there's a a split between the central government and some other group of people, and then they can embed themselves with the people that are disenfranchised and say, hey, we're your allies, we'll protect you. And that happened in Yemen. So one of the reasons why the U.S. was so determined uh, to try and avoid civil war in Yemen was to avoid that breakdown in central authority that would allow uh, al-Qaeda to uh, thrive. And so what's happened as a result of the continuing civil war is the exact opposite of what the U.S. wanted. Now there's a total breakdown in uh, central government authority in Yemen, and therefore um, there's nobody to go after uh, al-Qaeda, you know, um, mm-hmm. except the U.S. The Saudis are going after the Houthis. They're not going after uh, al-Qaeda. So that's the story in Yemen. But it's also true regionally, particularly in Syria, you know, when the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, began its intervention in Iraq and Syria against the emergence of ISIS. It formed this big international coalition of great fanfare, and they said, look, and we have the Saudis. Ta-da! <laughs> but then, when the Saudis started to get uh, involved in the Yemen civil war, they pulled out of the uh, military aspect of the coalition against ISIS. And so the, the yeah. belief by many is that the U.S. has enabled this. You know, it supposedly it was U.S. policies to get, to get the Saudis to cooperate in the struggle against Yemen, but in, in the struggle against ISIS. But in, instead what's been happening is that the U.S. facilitated the Saudis in going after um, the, uh, the people in, uh, the in, Houthis in, in Yemen. Yemen and taking their eye off the ball of uh, dealing with ISIS. Another important aspect of this, I think, is that when this uh, drama started in Yemen, it was in a very sensitive stage of the U.S.-Iran nuclear negotiation, where the U.S. was struggling to keep um, the Israeli government and the Saudi government on side. Mm-hmm. Everybody, the, the conflict with the Israeli government about it that, you know, everybody knows, and then how it came out, and so on and so forth. But the Saudis... The Saudi government was just as opposed to the Iran nuclear deal as the Israeli government. Yeah. And those two were playing off against each other. So the Obama administration was trying to, their top priority was to protect the Iran nuclear negotiation. Yeah. And basically, their strategy was give the Israelis and the Saudis everything else they want so they'll leave us alone uh. on the Iran nuclear negotiation. And everything else they want, in the case of the Saudis, meant the war in Yemen. Well, now we have a new dynamic. We have the Iran nuclear deal. That's done. That, I mean, obviously, there's still people that are against that and want to threaten and sabotage it. But the overwhelming uh, sense, you know, even people like Senator Cardin, who voted against the Iran nuclear deal, said, okay, that's done. You know, turn the page. Now let's focus on uh, implementing it. So the Obama administration has more latitude now to push back regardless of what you think about what happened in the past, the Obama administration has more political space now to push back against the Saudis 
than it did when the Iran nuclear negotiations were fragile. Now that that process is uh, complete and the U.S. has some, or at least that stage of it is complete, the U.S. has some kind of diplomatic relations with Iran, even though it doesn't have formal diplomatic mm-hmm. relations, there, the United States, the Obama administration has more uh, latitude to work with the Europeans to push back on the slice. And that's part of the dynamic that we're seeing now. Interesting. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Robert Naiman, Policy Director uh, at uh, Just Foreign Policy. He writes on U.S. foreign policy at Huffington Post and uh, has uh, written on uh, Syria in the WikiLeaks files, The World According to U.S. Empire. And uh, we're talking about uh, the changing situation between the U.S. and and Saudi Arabia. So with the the Iran deal basically done, uh, I I can't help but think that the Saudis are still kind of seething about that. It's it's, in a way, it's kind of hard to believe. Now, wait a minute. They wanted Iran to have the ability to develop a nuclear weapon? It's like, what? Why would that make sense? It, it's 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 rather odd and complicated uh, political situation down there. But uh, you know, why, why would they be, uh, you know, against preventing Iran from developing nuclear weapons? It's, it's well, funny. they're not against. It's, it's like the same dynamic with the Israeli government. They're not against uh, preventing Iran from dealing, from um, getting a nuclear weapon. But they liked the, they preferred the status quo of tension to a, a diplomatic um, agreement. Because from, from their point of view, and this, this is the Israeli government view as well, the price of the deal was too high. The price of the deal uh-huh. is bringing Iran in from the cold and making them part of the regional uh, architecture and a, the regional security guard and, and an implicit understanding that the United States is not going to attack Iran now. And so that uh, the U.S. is essentially accepting Iran in the neighborhood. Uh-huh. In fact, President Obama, in this recent uh, interview with uh, Jeffrey uh, Goldberg in The Atlantic, said, you know, the, the Saudis are going to have to accommodate and they're going to have to share the neighborhood with the Iranians oh and have some kind of a cold peace. That drove the Saudis up the wall, <laughs> according to press reports. That's exactly what they don't want to do. They don't want to share the neighborhood uh, with Iran. That's what they're feeling. That's what they're feeling about. As I said before, their view, like the right wing in the Israeli establishment, has been it's the job of the United States to maintain the status quo, not to uh, accommodate. But... The view of the Obama administration and people in the U.S. government is, no, it's not our job to maintain the the status quo. It's that we've got other things that we want to do in the world, not, um, you know, spending our lives babysitting their dictator. So uh, (laughs) that's the fundamental fundamental, uh, conflict here. And that's why we have this opportunity for movement now in this... this, uh, relationship that was uh, set in stone for decades, maybe now we have an opportunity to uh, change things and rebalance. 
And so that we don't, as Chris Murphy said, you know, we have to do support everything that the Saudis demand. Oh, boy, and we know how important balances are, as we've seen in history. If the balance gets upset a little bit here or there, all kinds of uh, unforeseen uh, events can happen. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, powerful interests have really liked the balance that there has been with Saudi Arabia uh, as the uh, the stabilizing agent, the, uh, the big boss <coughs> of the neighborhood. I wonder about uh, the relationship between the Saudis and Isra- Israel's uh, right-wing Netanyahu. How, how are they working together? And, you know, the people in Yemen are seeing the effects of, you know, they're getting bombed, they're getting killed, and they, they see that the military uh, weapons being used to kill them sometimes come from the United States. And, you know, that can't help uh, stabilize, you know, the situation for us and, and keep ISIS out of there. But uh, with regard to, to Israel and you know, making uh, a lot of the uh, Palestinians and Palestinian supporters uh, rather upset. What about, uh, you know, how does the the rest of the Arab world, what is the relationship between the Saudi royals and Israel's Netanyahu, and how does that affect the rest of the Arab world that we have kind of a need to work with? That's a very interesting dynamic. So we've seen in the recent while a significant change not maybe not in the underlying dynamics, but the degree to which people were willing to be more public. So, of course, it's been true for years that for the Saudis, you know, Israel is an official enemy, and you know, there's the Arab boycott and blah 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 blah. But anybody who really followed things knew that the Saudis were that there's a little bit of a fake enemy uh, relationship, but. No, it's come much more into the open. So, for example, when um, Netanyahu came to Congress and gave his speech against mm-hmm. the Iran nuclear deal, mm-hmm. you know, the reaction in at least among uh, Democrats and many Democrats in Washington was, you know, this is terrible that the Prime Minister of, of Israel is coming to give this provocative speech trying to uh, disrupt the foreign policy diplomacy and everything. But in Saudi Arabia... The government was like saying, "This is great, go yeah. Netanyahu." Ah. So that was something that never happened before. That the Saudis were willing to openly cheer for the Israeli government uh, in in uh, in its attack on uh, U.S. diplomacy. That is hmm. that is new. The, so- the openness of the um, Saudi. Uh, Israeli uh, political collaboration Boy, is I... new, and the and again with respect to the Palestinians, yeah. formerly the Saudis were always the big cheerleader for the, right. the you know where that's because they're the leader of the Arab world, so therefore they're the leader of Arab support for the Palestinian cause. But in this recent period, the Saudis have been willing to really let that slide uh, by their focus on their hatred of Iran. So, you know, the terrible things are happening to Palestinians in Palestine, but nobody's paying attention to that because everybody's paying attention to (laughs) the uh, Yemen and Syria civil wars. So if you you wanted to do something about it to help the Palestinians, like maybe one of the things you do would be like try to end the civil war in Syria and Yemen, so the world could turn its attention back to the focus on 
uh, the Palestinians. But the Saudis uh, have uh, refused or have been extremely reluctant uh, in, hmm. in supporting those diplomatic resolutions. I almost feel sorry for them, but not quite. I mean, the, the uh, political position, the power uh, position that they are, are in, I mean, you talk about a rock and a hard place. Uh, you know, on one hand, they have to make nice with the U.S. On the other hand, you know, the entire Arab world, you got to be on, uh, I mean, Saudi Arabia has an interest in, in being friends with them and being their leader, not the bad guy. So here they are, you know, killing a lot of people in Yemen and then uh, starting to turn their back on, on the Palestinians that have, frankly, a lot of support uh, throughout the, uh, you know, the less wealthy Arab world, not the, the Omans and the Qatars and places like that. Uh, I thought it was interesting in this context, Donald Trump, who I don't think I've ever agreed with, he, he said recently, this is an interesting quote from Donald Trump, quote, if Saudi Arabia was without the cloak of American protection, I don't think it would be around, end quote. Might this be accurate? How, how tenuous is the Saudi royal government? Well, uh, it's hard to say because, of course, this is a proposition that has never been tested. No, that's true. Since the Saudi government was uh, created, it was always uh, patronized and protected by foreign powers, first by the British and then by the United States. So we've never lived in a world in which the Saudi government wasn't protected by uh, foreign power, including foreign yeah. Military power. Right. No, the U.S. isn't the only friend of Saudi Arabia. Right. So, the and that's part of the dynamic here. You know, as I mentioned earlier, when the 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 reason, for example, that there was such a one-sided um, Security Council resolution on Yemen uh, was that nobody wanted to defend the Saudis. It wasn't just the U.S., Europeans, even the Russians uh, went along with that. And those are long-standing um, dynamics. So I don't think that, I mean, on the one hand, I'm glad that Trump is, uh, I'm glad that Trump said that because it's helping to break the taboo uh, uh-huh. that we can't even uh, talk about this stuff. But uh, I don't think it's necessarily the case that if the U.S. Uh, withdrew support, the Saudi government would immediately collapse. Uh-huh. But I do think that, and, and also I think that it's uh, it's not going to happen anyway. Like, the U.S. isn't going to completely, it's right. not going to go from 100 to zero. It's not going to completely withdraw its support. Yeah. But I do think that if the U.S. steps back, then, you know, the, the, the Saudis have grown uh, dependent, not just on support from the U.S., but, like, knee-jerk, unquestioning support from the U.S. And what I think is feasible is to get rid of the, the knee-jerk on questioning. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And if there starts to be more challenge, then I think the Saudis will have to be more accommodating. You know, they have to be engaged more seriously in uh, resolving the Yemen civil war and in re- resolving the Syrian civil war. And then what that means is that they'll have to accept that others are going to have a role and have a say, and this is not, you know, their, uh, their backyard to rule yeah. unilaterally. And that's what President Obama's uh, saying that's what they're resisting, but I think that if if the Obama administration puts that rhetoric into practice, if they get support for that from Congress and the American people and institutions and from Europe, I think that's 
feasible. And what that would mean in the long run, you know, would the Saudi government have to, if these relationships and arrangements change, would they have to be more accommodating domestically to human rights concerns, desires for democracy and free speech? Maybe so. I certainly hope so. That's not really our business. Um, (laughs) I hope that would would, uh, come about. But the... Uh, the main thing I think that we should be concerned with is withdrawing U.S. support for the extreme policies that the Saudis have been pursuing. And before we get back to uh, the uh, Murphy-Paul legislation, all the candidates say that uh, uh, that to fight ISIS, it can't it can't just be the United States doing the fighting. We need to get uh, the powers in the region to do it. What do we know? about the Saudi help in fighting ISIS. I mean, there are all kinds of uh, intricate webs that happen here, like between Turkey and ISIS, a lot of winking and nodding going on there. But what, what about, what's the relationship between the Saudis and ISIS? Are they leading the fight against ISIS, or is it more complicated? Well, they definitely haven't been leading the fight against ISIS. The thing that people are most concerned about is uh, Saudis, helping groups that are close to ISIS and collaborators of ISIS and promoting ideology that's closest close to ISIS ideology. So and and also again when we say the Saudis, not necessarily Saudi government officials, but uh, mm-hmm. maybe members of the royal family, other right. wealthy people in Saudi Arabia sending uh, money. And or maybe it's Saudi citizens going on uh, jihad, and the Saudi government's not stopping that. And people would expect, no, that's your job as a government to stop those. Maybe you're not, maybe you're not sending the money. Maybe you're not sending the fighters. But though that stuff's happening from your country, uh-huh. and as a government, you're responsible to help stop that from happening. And this has been a long-standing complaint of the U.S. government, not again, not just against the Saudi government, uh-huh. but. Kuwait and the UAE, all these uh, governments that are, some sense, U.S. protectorates, have not cracked down on uh, terror finance, jihadist recruiting coming from their uh, country. Mm-hmm. So, no, they are not leaders. And in fact, they are, they're, to a significant degree, they're not even followers. And that, I think, wow. is really the crux. The military, obviously... You know, if the U.S. is bombing in Iraq or Syria, the the military, potential military contribution of Saudi Arabia to that is small. It's a symbolic political thing. Having the, the Saudis directly participate sends a political message to the region that the Saudis are of the same mind as the international community with respect to ISIS and al-Qaeda. And that's not what's... That hasn't been true Mm. until now. Wow, interesting. There's a lot that can be done. We, the people, are not powerless. We still have some degree of democracy. The Murphy-Paul bill would set new conditions for U.S. military support to Saudi Arabia. What can people do? Is there a a Senate bill number that uh, people should uh, call or write or email their member of Congress? What can people do to uh, help move along the Murphy-Paul legislation to uh, perhaps become law and, uh, you know, put some conditions on there? And this is, it sounds like, in the United States' interest uh, in in the area. 
Yes, absolutely. People can uh, contact their uh, senators. They can also contact their House members. There's right. been some uh, discussion, which I hope will be fruitful in the coming days, of having a House companion um, to the uh, to the Senate bill. Um, the bill number of the... Uh, the Murphy-Paul legislation? Of the Murphy-Paul. It's, joint, it's Senate Joint Resolution 32. So people can tell their senators, please call a sponsor, uh, Senate Joint Resolution 32. Or they can just say, co-sponsor the Murphy-Paul bill on military aid to Saudi Arabia. There's only one such bill. So <laughs> everyone will know yeah. um, what it is. And, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, if we start to see other senators come on, on this bill, I think that is something that is going to be noticed. It could help. Uh, in, it's in American interest to have more security in the region. And uh, so far, yeah, it's been uh, a little bit less than we would like. Robert Naiman, thank you so much for being with us. If people are interested in what you guys are up to, what's the uh, website for Just Foreign Policy? It's justforeignpolicy.org. Justforeignpolicy.org. And, of course, that word just can be taken two ways, intentionally, obviously. Justforeignpolicy.org. Thanks so much for being with us and uh, shedding some light on this uh, very interesting and intricate area of the world. Thank you for the opportunity. And we're going to uh, hear a little bit about the secret life of Arabia. Thanks for listening. 